Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is pioneering ecological artist Aviva Rahmani, who has worked at the cutting edge of the avant-garde since she committed to her career in art at the age of 19. Rahmani is an affiliate of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado at Boulder. She earned her PhD from the University of Plymouth, UK, and received her BFA and MFA at the California Institute of the Arts. She co-edited with Amara Geffen, Anne Rosenthal, and Chris Fremantle the anthology Echo Art in Action, Activities, Case Studies, and Provocations for Classrooms and Communities. Rahmani offers us an intimate tour of her life and work from her childhood beginnings in a privileged but abusive home, her coming of age during the political and artistic ferment of the 1960s in the downtown New York scene, her development as a feminist, and her evolution into an eco-artist who marshals her multidisciplinary approach to take on our ecological crises. I welcome Aviva Rahmani to Savage Minds. Your book is Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea, but the autobiography is not just of an idea. You include details of your life. And what was very interesting to me is when I first heard your name, I thought, oh, she's Egyptian. You know, like I just had this idea with the last name Rahmani that your name was of Arabo-Islamic origin. Well, that is not the case. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this? Because I found that fascinating story in and of itself. Thank you. Well, the original family name was Russian. It was Gaban. It's actually a Romanian name. And my father had come from Odessa. He emigrated to Palestine with his mother, sister, and brother. But he left behind his older brother, who went into the Navy. And when Stalin came to power at the same time, my father was active in the Haganah against the British. So he deliberately changed his name and he chose a very common Arabic name, partly because he had a lot of Arabic friends. At that time, the populations were much more mixed, to put it mildly, than they are now. And his goal was to prevent Stalin from tracing his brother to anything that was a Zionist movement in Israel or what was then Palestine. It didn't work my uncle was sent to Siberia and he died there. But that's the origin of my last name. And the first name is a name that was given to many firstborn Israelis. It means spring in Hebrew. It's the same root as the city Tel Aviv, which means hill of spring. Your story goes into the details of your growing up in a rather affluent family with aspects of abuse that actually rang true for me because similar to you, I grew up in an affluent family. And one of the things about abuse within a family that is not poor, it's no one expects it. So therefore it doesn't exist. I think it's not just that no one expects it. It's also that if you come from a relatively wealthy background, you don't deserve any pity for any reason. And a tremendous investment in the more affluent classes in appearances, I would say. So you really don't want to say that there's anything wrong with your family. You might have the same pressures in other classes, but in the lower, upper, upper middle classes, that's a monetized phenomenon that the women have to present well. They are, in effect, an extension of the real estate of the men. And I think the uh, pattern that many of us experience in abusive families that are well off is that the paterfamilias is uh, a dominant personality. He's usually an alpha male. And the rest of the family has to conform to a patriarchal system. And in a patriarchal system, violence is taken for granted, especially against women, of course. Yes. And your work addresses this. You have the term echo art or ecological art uh, associated with your work. And when I first read about your work, I thought of the land artists. I thought of you know, Robert Smithson, Donald Judd, Nancy Holt, etc. But you write in your book 
The echo art or ecological art as a distinct genre has evolved as a hybrid form from people like me who couldn't accept silos, where land artists such as Robert Smithson were using sculptural techniques to stamp their own philosophical comments on the earth, as my father had. Echo artists are driven by the sense that the earth desperately requires healing much more than stamping. Could you explain this to our listeners? Thank you. Well, it's interesting that you may know James Lovelock just passed away and he was one of- No, I didn't. Just, I think two days ago or a day ago, he was 101 and he was one of the architects of Gaia theory in which the whole earth is considered as a living system. I think those of us who now identify ourselves as ecological artists or echo artists are people who grew up with the assumption that that was actually the case. If that's actually the case, you don't carve your name on your relative. And I think I could say that many of the land artists did carve their names on the landscape. Art always represents some system of beliefs. The Renaissance altarpieces or medieval altarpieces represented a religious point of view and they existed as a model for the audience to emulate. So that was entirely about worship of the religious metaphors that were represented. That was also true of land art. Land art came from a system in which it was presumed that humans had not only the power, but the right, even the mandate, to extract whatever they pleased from the natural environment. And ecological art were operating from an entirely different system, which is closer to the Gaia principle. So ecological artists are manifesting an entirely different model of how we might relate to the earth and all its citizens, meaning non-human citizens, and all its resources. In my own work with the Ghost Nets project, I noticed an entire spectrum of change. And as I analyzed what I was observing, I realized that it was parallel insights to how thermodynamics works in the process of change. And it was out of that that I developed trigger point theory. The difference between trigger point theory and other kinds of systems is that it's a deliberate effort to identify emergent issues, emergent phenomena that could lead to a different outcome. It's an, a proactive relationship to change, but it is also based in the physics of change. So it's not just some airy-fairy theory that I've created. You talk about this integrative approach to art. Is there something about what is happening in the world over your lifetime that makes this approach viable or powerful? Well, I would argue that capitalist society in general encourages us to think in fragmented silos. So science is over here and art's over there. And then you, you separate all the different silos of art and all the different silos of science. And all of that has nothing to do with politics. And I think that's very arbitrary and it's really designed to make all of us producers in an economic system that is actually the very system that's destroying everything we have. It's in effect a form of eco-suicide. So I would argue that capitalism is a system that's run rampant and one way it has done that is by divisions. It's the old adage of divide and conquer, not just tribalist divisions, but divisions in terms of interests and focus and types of labor. Basaram Nicolescu is one of those physicists who looked at the whole problem of systems change and suggested transdisciplinarity as a form of looking at the space between disciplines in which we might find solutions for our future for our present, going into our future. Also, I came from a 
background, I was in a Montessori school as a child, I came from a background that normally integrated many different ways of learning skills and looking at the world. That was partly when I was a teenager and I, when I was growing up, because I was growing up in an international environment. My parents were working in Venezuela. We were routinely traveling to Israel quite frequently. I was going to school in Switzerland where I met people from many, many different cultures. And so it was really natural for me to step into first an interdisciplinary and eventually a transdisciplinary space. And my thoughts about that are that when we stop fragmenting everything and start looking at some of the confluences and relationships, we might begin to address the scale of our contemporary ecological problems more efficiently instead of doing what we're doing, which is reinventing the wheel in every separate discipline. Right. Could you give me an example of that that we might look to? The easiest one for me to take out of my own work is in the Blue Tree Symphony. By applying trigger point theory to the problem of fossil fuels, it became quite natural for me to look at the corridors where they were proposing to put natural gas pipelines and envision them as lines of music in which the trees were the notes of a symphony. And once I did that, I realized that we could use copyright law, Visual Artists Rights Act in, the, in America to contest what we call here eminent domain law, which is the taking of private property for public use. And in this country, the problem with those takings is that they're very dominated by corporate and particularly fossil fuel interests. And their interest is in using up the land. So that evolved into a legal theory, which we could adjudicate in a mock trial and get an injunction against the corporations. So that was an example of combining what I knew about environmental science, the law, and the disciplines of many people who are engaged in what we were doing, music, and the visual arts, because we did, in fact, designate individual trees as tree notes. And those trees were then painted with a vertical sine wave, which was quite beautiful in the landscape, but it also represented the score for a symphony in one-third mile measures. Oh, lovely. And where can we see this? There are videos of some of the work. There are actually quite a few films and photographs that people took of the work. And so you can see that online. Your work rests upon this space. As you mentioned, it's interdisciplinary. It's also transdisciplinary. What drew you to this approach? Was it partially the political use of this kind of approach or was there something else that spoke to you? Well, I was very affected by some of the work I saw in the mid 60s and early 60s. For example, John Cage's 437 piece and some of the work I saw at the Armory in 1966, particularly Rauschenberg's tennis piece that I was part of as one of the members of the crowd. And I just had a revelation from that work of an entirely different world. Mm. Uh, even the drug experiences of those times were a door open into experiencing life that was much more integrated. Yes, well, it's interesting you mentioned Rauschenberg and Cage, and these are people who did a lot of collaboration with other artists from other fields. Obviously, we know about Cunningham and Cage's collaborations, but also Rauschenberg's work was integrated also into the dance world and into music. I had my formal studies in New York, 
and I'm quite familiar with the way the art world works there. And it's both a lovely place where I remember going to one of my first openings in New York. And I was a poor graduate student. I was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and I, I might've looked like a homeless person to many people there because there were very wealthy people in the same room as me. But the art world in New York is quite beautiful in the sense that you can walk in and be speaking to people who could be living on the street or could own, well, maybe not Trump Tower because I've never seen him there, but they could own something like Trump Tower, which is a very different scene than the art world in many other major cities, very different. I've, I've also been part of the art world in London and it's a very different experience. So I'm wondering what is it about New York that the New York art scene has changed over the past, well, certainly since 1966, and especially with the growth of Soho and the way that that was uh, popped up. Also, Donald Judd had a huge hand in that, as I'm sure you know. What has happened with the art scene such that this kind of integrative approach, it's now a thing, it's almost become a style in the art world where you must do interdisciplinary works for some kinds of shows. But I wonder if this hasn't become too much of a fashion and less of a political tool, if you catch my drift. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I just want to go back to your question about interdisciplinarity and Rauschenberg. You have to remember that the EAT performances were subsidized by Bell Labs. And so all those artists were, were the dancers, everybody was working with the engineers at Bell Labs. And Bell Labs was really visionary in understanding that when artists work with an engineer, things happen that wouldn't happen any other way. And so it was a very lucrative decision on their part. It was self-interest, but it was enlightened self-interest. As far as the art world in New York, part of it is that New York is such a geographically centralized area. It all comes to the hub in Manhattan and part of Brooklyn. And so people do rub elbows with each other in a small space. Uh, that has changed somewhat as people move into the outer boroughs and even more, I'd say, since COVID because artists like myself simply can't afford to live in New York anymore. So instead, what's happening is we're all congregating in Zooms. Before I got online with you today, I was part of a Zoom that Monica Fabijanska had organized with Ukrainian women artists for a show that she's curated, which was really amazing. And right after that, I stopped in on a Zoom that Andrew Revkin was doing about the passing of James Lovelock. And Andy has moved up to Maine. He's moved out of the New York area and he's now in down East Maine. So he's actually relatively speaking my neighbor here. And we don't yet know how this is all going to fall out. I routinely hear every day of something that's going on in New York City that I wish I was there for. But at the same time, I see an entirely different cosmopolitan universe evolving in the art market, and some of it is in the metaverse. So we really don't know how this is all going to fall out and how ultimately it's going to be an expression of resistance, as art always is, to the prevailing status quo. That's interesting. I'm thinking also, though, the, the downside to this, in, in, in the sense of, I am one of those people who mourns the loss of the movie theater, because with the internet, you know, people are very happy to save however many bucks it is to no longer go to the movie theater and stream online. But I worry about that loss of the personal interaction in real life that we simply can't replace by Zoom. We can't replace that, not the gallery space, not the movie theater. And it is missing to me, I have to say. I wish we could bring back old movie houses. I don't know if you remember St. Mark's Place. Of you could course. go and see a double bill for $5 
And then after Howard Otway died, it went away and became a repertory theater. Yay. But I miss it. <laughs> and there were many more all throughout New York. And you know of even more because I moved to New York in the late 80s. So, and there were many more. And I would hear people talking about these movie theaters sometimes while waiting for a film to begin. Nathalia Soho, another. And so I worry about the fact that inter interactions online, they're good for meetings. They're good for getting organized and stuff. But can they replace the gallery space? And obviously, you're more of an established artist. Younger artists will, of course, be expected to still be in these very overpriced hubs to get their work under the nose of a gallerist, right? Yeah, but they can't. It's just impossible. Nobody can afford to live there. Even an established artist, I don't have the kind of income that allows me to live in New York anymore. Unless you have a faculty job there, and those are pretty slim pickings. Absolutely. As far as this question of uh, what we're missing, we're all missing a lot. Just recently, I was talking with somebody just Tuesday and said that I finally identified that the pervasive terror I feel, and I do feel terror a lot about what's going on in the world, is really the mask for the grief I feel of so much that's being lost. And I have a colleague, a friend, Glenn Albrecht, who wrote the book Solastalgia, who talks about it in environmental terms, that we feel a nostalgia for the environment that we are in the process of losing. But as you said, we're also losing the social environment. On the other hand, humans are social creatures. We will find other ways to congregate. It's a very big issue. It's a big issue in my work. I'm working on an opera now that's based on the Blue Trees Symphony and the legal transcript from the mock trial. And I'm thinking of it as a hybrid event. So it would have a physical dimension with real people in a real space, but I think it's probably also gonna have a dimension in the metaverse. <laughs> We're certainly at this very bizarre space as we spoke earlier before recording, that the uncertainty as to if we're going to be in other lockdowns, it makes everything so precarious. And our need for human interactions is vital. It's, it's not just the social in terms of what did you do last night? What did you watch on TV? We really do need this as part of our psychological health. And I worry about these kinds of vanishing spaces in New York. I mean, it's just a scandal what's going on with the land grab there. It's a scandal, the disappearance of rent control and rent stabilization and the way that the most disenfranchised have been chased out. I remember not so long ago, even when I lived in New York around 2002, I'd come back to the country briefly and taught at NYU and I found that a lot of the people have been chased out of the north of Central Park, which is Harlem. A lot of them were bought out or they were renters. They could no longer afford to live anywhere in Manhattan, nor most of Brooklyn. People were living out towards Coney Island, you know? So it's just wild right. to see the way in which people who need to be in the city for any number of reasons had to be, they were pushed out and they couldn't just go somewhere else because of what they needed to be there for. And they had to make the choice to live on the very outskirts of the of the boroughs. Uh, and many moved to Staten Island too. I've met many people who moved to Staten Island, just became ferry people. It's interesting, but it's also sad because I remember reading and I talked to Donald Judd's widow and hearing the stories about how Soho was built and how that came to be for the artist. It was a godsend. You know, this was in a time oh, New York cost nothing. I interviewed an economist many months ago who studied at NYU in the 60s. His rent it was nothing. I believe he said it was something like $50 a month or something. Yeah, that was routine. And now you can't rent a shoebox in New York, even if you have a full-time salary, a lot of people. It's expensive. It's very expensive. Just recently, I did this workshop in the Pyrenees 
And it made all the difference in the world that we were in that natural landscape that in fact it was a residency so we were living together for several days and it wasn't that people were coming and going we're actually talking at the meals and then we were experiencing the exercises that i was giving them i had also done a virtual version of a similar workshop with the same people two years earlier at the beginning of COVID, it was entirely different. And so recently I did a workshop here on the island where I live in ghost nets, in the landscape that I had created. And it came up several times with other people would I consider doing this workshop virtually? It's very hard for me to imagine how participants could have the same experience if we were talking virtually. So it's a real issue how we're going to get around the uh, changing demographic patterns for the whole globe, not just for New York City. Obviously, a lot of people, I know since the first months of the pandemic, because I wrote about it, I was reading a lot of reports about people who were even affluent and able to leave, but they decided to leave. They're like, no more city living for us. This is done. So people have fled the city. Um, I'm glad that artists are able to leave, but this leaves other questions about, about capitalism and the way in which people cannot survive including in the West. People love to talk about favelas or the shanty towns in Delhi, but the reality is that it's all from where you're standing, how you call things. The homeless situation just outside of Penn Station has always been bad. The reality is that capitalism is fundamentally driving, you mentioned an ecocide, but we've got all sorts of political and social and ecological issues afoot because of capitalism. And I'm wondering if your work, when you address patriarchy, is there a solution there to class issues? Because as you know, a lot of feminists, especially the radical feminists, address women as a class. So you've got obviously the Marxist who will look at class issues, and then you have the radical feminists who look at women as a class, and that's another class issue. How can we solve the problems of the earth and of misogyny, etc.? Well, the simplest answer to your question is exactly what you're doing, which is daylighting the problem. The way I see it, the ultimate version of misogynist patriarchy is the white knight on the white horse who's rescuing the virginal damsel. And the ultimate expression of that right now is Putin. So the damsel that he's supposedly rescuing is Ukraine, and he's already raped her. Yes, except although that is a very unfortunate situation, we have another situation at the same time. Not pro-Putin, but I have a huge issue with NATO that has been an issue for many, many years. Putin has discussed this. Again, no fan. But I think that the larger issues are about geopolitical influences. Who is running what? And it's interesting how we address problems of ecology when we've got countries that are signing up for certain accords, other countries don't, or switch a president and they undo the accord the previous president did, if you know I'm talking about here. And we end up going into this gyre of various leaders promising to do something about the ecological situation when in fact the problems are everywhere in the sense of i read in a report today that there was a suggestion made at the world economic forum i believe that people should no longer be allowed to have cars individual cars and i thought okay it sounds like a great idea in cities where that could work where there's car sharing but obviously it's not practical for people living outside of the cities and so I begin to wonder how policies are made that will address the larger issues, such as invading Ukraine is not a great thing, but NATO is a terrible thing as well. How can we move towards a world civilization where these kinds of points 
of control, of regional control, the U.S. dropping its military bases now, and many, I believe there's now 14 military bases within Africa that the U.S. has covertly and very silently done over the years. And that's not going to make the front page nudes anytime soon. But we know with our history of arms trade and what we did with, remember, Iran Contra and the war against the Sandinistas, our country's particular history of polarizing poverty and wealth, of polarizing anyone they want to make BFFs with, only to later say, oh, but they're a dictator, as we did with Saddam Hussein, Manuel Noriega, the list can go on infinitely. We did this with so many of the despots. We helped get into power in Central America, right? I tend to look at the situation in Ukraine at a much more macro level, not just, okay, everyone agrees, invading Ukraine, not good. But we've got to step back and say, what the heck? Putin's been asking the U.S. for the past decade to stop the NATO shenanigans there using Ukraine and neighboring countries. So how can we even talk about ecology when all of the G7 countries, they talk out of both sides of their mouths. On the one hand, they say, oh, we'll sign up to the Tokyo Accord, blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, they all deal with arms trades. I didn't even know Italy's a major arms trader as well. I just looked up the main arms traders in the world, and it's quite shocking to see how many of the countries will then sign up for cleaner air and fewer fossil fuels. And then on the other hand, they're wheeling and dealing. Let me address your implicit question in two different ways. One is the macro, but I look at the macro in terms of time, and I'm inspired by my Native American friends who speak of producing what we produce creatively for the seventh generation, not for us right now. I can look at what's happening in the world with humans and consider it as an ecological problem of an overburdened system that's overpopulated with one species. It's gonna crash, it's in the process of crashing. COVID was just one aspect of the crash that's coming. We're going to decimate our populations. We are decimating our populations. It's going to be horrible. The Native American people I speak to say it's going to get way, way worse than what we're seeing now. What I anticipate with any species that overconsumes its resources is that there will be refugia of people who are left. And so I hope for that refugia that they bring some wisdom with them for whatever civilization comes in seven generations or in 20 generations. So that's part of it. It's the animal behavioralism of what happens when a species simply can't restrain itself. The other side that I look at is, so let's take that fairy tale of the white knight on the white horse and so on. It's the fairy tale of the dominant male. I think the antidote to the dominant male is for women to tell their stories. It's an extension of the We Too movement. It's the idea that people can't relate to the fate of millions but they can relate to one polar bear. And what I have experienced when I tell my own story is that men are just as anxious to dismantle those kind of, kinds of toxic masculine tropes. And when they do, they are not socializing each other into violent domination of the earth. They're trying to find a more amicable, reasonable relationship with women and other people of all kinds. Now, in between, you're talking about G7 and how are we going to change the policy right now? I've put my faith in the legal movement to condemn ecocide. We're moving from the definition of ecocide with Arthur Galston in about 1971 to actual consequences for ecocide. 
And that's a movement that's growing. It's growing in tandem with the movement for Earth rights. And it's somewhat touch and go um, as people move backwards in the legal system. But it is moving forward at the same time. And more and more people are becoming cognizant of how the legal system can intervene in the kinds of disastrous circumstances that you're describing. Will that be fast enough? Your guess is as good as mine. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I've seen it firsthand. People living on and around vast garbage dumps who are very lucky if they reach the age of 30. It does exist. And the conditions that we see of still many mining communities around the world, the longevity that many people don't have of life because of the professions they were put into from childhood because their parents did this. And these are problems very much related to the way we consume things. I think of an article I read maybe two and a half years ago on the fishermen in Southeast Asia who are basically kidnapped, forced to work on fishing boats. And yes, terrible. And, and, And this actually brings me to the next question, which is about the way in which your work as a female artist, you've experienced a lot of sexism, discrimination in the art world. Yet the example I just gave is one of many where the exploitation of men happens, usually not in the field of, let's say, other work I've done in terms of human trafficking, human trafficking for sex, for organs of children. These are horrible things to think about, but they are a reality, sadly. Right. And so when you start to look at the world and the exploitation, we can look at the exploitation tends to fall along class lines and it tends to fall along sexed lines. Right. Can you talk about some of the experiences you've had as an artist, as a woman in the art world? Well, the first thing I have to say about that is that patriarchy is not gendered. There are just as many women who are invested in patriarchal systems, and we see that in this country with the abortion issue, as there are men invested, and vice versa. There are just as many men who want to dismantle these oppressive and horrible systems as women. As far as my experience, I think what we underestimate that most women in most cultures experience is the cost of emotional labor. The emotional labor of simply living with unfair circumstances, whatever those are. And for most women, that's a routine experience that is touched off 20 times a day in every interaction we have culturally. So part of it does go back to, I think, what I said earlier about um, creating systems that allow people to express themselves differently. I've been very curious and fascinated about the metaverse just now because it is a system that doesn't depend on conventional ownership and conventional ideas about property rights. It has a lot to do with relationships and what you really take ownership of in the NFT metaverse is the relationship to the artistic creation rather than the object that the artist produces. That might be a precursor for society for the rest of us where we don't think of wealth in terms of commodification. Yet, at the end of the day, when we talk about wealth, it fundamentally matters to people in terms of, let's say, the great exodus of people from New York who can no longer afford to live there, where social housing is extremely limited 
and even when it exists it's uh i have a few friends living in social housing in new york it's the size of many people's bathrooms around the rest of the u.s tiny tiny places to live in all because one of my friends who lives there is in fact an artist and the material reality is still something very core to how we survive and i know you were talking about population earlier which again that's another point of debate amongst many people uh, involved in the ecological debate itself but we have a population that's growing and there seems to be less and less sharing if we look at the the ratio of wealth to poverty from the 1970s to the present the gap has increased between the wealthy and the poor astronomically your work gets at these issues for instance well i asked earlier about the struggles you faced personally as a woman can you discuss that within your artwork even sure um in the book i describe a time in my life when i was the director of a small street theater group it was called the american ritual theater and it was very politicized we were very involved with the circle around herbert marcuse and that meant that we were on the ucsd campus quite a lot so at that time when i was asked to start a dance department there and went forward i was cited when the then provost, John, I think he was the provost, Stewart, said that if I stepped foot on campus again, he would have me arrested. The result was that I really didn't know what to do next. It was a bad time in my life. I was going through my divorce. And at that point, um, Newton Harrison, who is also an ecological artist, recommended that I go up to CalArts and get a job with uh, the faculty in the art department there and with Alan Capra. And when I went to see Alan, before I had a chance to ask for a job, he said to Paul Brock, who was then the chair of the department, I want her as my student. So I, I chose to be his student rather than to demand a teaching job. Years later, when I was finishing up graduate school, he walked over and he said, well, do you want to teach? And I said, no, I'm going to support myself as an artist, which is one of the more stupid things that I said. And he walked away, which was probably one of the more stupid things that he did. But that entire trajectory of being subject to one man's decision about his own politics in relation to my potential academic career, my decision to throw myself at the mercy of the men I knew, the lack of interest from Alan Capro, even though he was otherwise fabulous, in getting across to me, hey, you will not always earn a living as an artist. That's the way it is as an artist. You need a job. So go to the College Art Association and get a job. All those pieces worked out the way they did because I was a woman. Even though I was a feminist woman, I had no idea how much I had internalized the systems, and I had no idea how challenging it would be to try to resist the systems. So as a result, I never had an academic career for whatever other reasons. And instead, I've had to scrape together my living as best I could as a sole individual artist who doesn't have institutional backing. I've been relatively lucky. There are a hell of a lot of artists who are not nearly as lucky, and a lot of them are women. And I know a lot of women who are struggling with health as we all get older. It's one thing to leave, live the bohemian free life in your 20s or even your 30s. But you get into your 70s and it's really tough sledding. I remember taking a bus. There's a block. I want to say it's between 6th and 7th, if not 7th and 8th Avenue towards 30th Street. There was a woman who got on one day and she was an artist in her 80s 
and we spoke the whole ride that we were on about this. And one thing New York City does that's quite good for the elderly, over a certain age, you can go to museums and even the MoMA movies daily if you want for free. But there were a lot of things, obviously, that weren't done to facilitate artists' lives. If you were lucky enough to get into a flat in the day where Cunningham had his studio, that building was very coveted by people in the art world because if you got in, you had a decent-sized flat. It was rare though, and she was also worried about her health, how she would even in the winter get in the bus because all these issues that you don't think about when you're in your 20s, mobility, safety. Yet, I think it's also inspirational to see artists doing their own thing, even if it is outside of New York. I think it's great because the quality of life you can have on your island in Maine ultimately will be better. Yeah, I don't know. Jerry Saltz once said something like, okay, you want to be an artist, you're going to be poor. Get over it. I think that's kind of simplistic and even a little bit cruel because the fact is that the society really fails the artists. The society and the whole culture depends on the arts in a million different ways, but that doesn't mean that they value the artists that produce the culture. And that's a real problem. The average income for an American artist is something like $15,000 annually. That's impossible. Nobody can live on 15000 I put together from various sources in the past year or so about 53000 annually, out of which I have to deduct my assistant, which is about between 32 and 35,000. I really depend on having an assistant because I have chronic fatigue syndrome. So that really limits a lot of what I can manage. But that isn't enough. In order to make the difference up between what I can bring in and what I need to cover my bills, I have to bring in an additional 16000 in the next year. If I can't, I have to cut back on her hours. There's nothing else I can cut back on. I have to have some money for materials. I have to have the money for my medical insurance. I have to have the money for my property taxes. It all adds up. It's not like I'm taking spa vacations. And I'm privileged. Very few artists are able to cobble together even 53,000, let alone about 70,000, which is what I would have to manage in order to not get into debt. This is why so many artists, though, end up either, if they don't teach, they take on other jobs. I have artist friends who do that, and their jobs even working in the local markets, like at Union Square. But that too can only be done until one is a certain age because these are physically demanding jobs. And you can't do that at all if you have chronic fatigue syndrome. Right. And because I've had chronic fatigue syndrome, I also don't have social security because I haven't worked enough quarters. And I'm not unique. My story is not the story of riches to rags to riches to rags. It's it's what happens when the society does not value the labor of cultural workers in general. Right, right. Well, we know that our society values those labors only in as much as they can make a t-shirt from it. And I'm thinking of Keith exactly. Haring's work because his work right. was highly commodified. Uh, a tiny bit, tiny, tiny bit, tote bags of George O'Keefe's work in the 80s as well. And then that sector of the museum shop exploded. And I don't know if it's still there. Uh, last time I was in New York, the, was it the Met had a shop on Spring, uh, on Spring Street, just west of Broadway. Can't think of the name of that cross street, but it's just one block west, you know, running north and south towards Houston and Nolita. And I was like a bit shocked to see a museum shop there because it was just full of memorabilia 
that you would find in any museum shop, but the museum had just made its own shop there too, just to cash in on tourism, I guess. Right. It troubles me in the sense of, okay, who doesn't want an Edvard Munch, the scream on your refrigerator? Okay, put your bills there. That's sort of funny. But it speaks to the problems of capitalism once again. This is the Pictionary of reification, where the artist, even though Munch is dead, but the artist is so far removed from the product, and that product has been multiplied by the factory owner and the intermediary seller and marketer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you have loads of money coming from the art world, but it's been carefully diverted away from you and other artists and into the pockets of those who run these kinds of shops that can then rubber stamp out t-shirts to the tune of X or Y artist of the, the hot button artist of the year, right? Oh, she was at the Venice Biennial. Okay, well, let me get the t-shirt. And I sort of have a problem with that kind of commodification because it does the artist no favor and instead maybe there needs to be another system where t-shirts can still exist but maybe the wealth is spread around more fairly and maybe there are other ways of artists being paid livable wages without having to make t-shirts of their work right well on the island there's a perfect example of what you're talking about robert indiana used to live here before he passed away and he created the love insignia. And the US Postal Service made a mint off that. And so did everybody else. This was before Vera was passed. And he didn't fight it. He could have fought it. At least I think he could have, but he didn't. And that was a copyright issue. So that goes to the question of ownership and capitalism and who gets to own what. The society is still set up so that it's harder for women to have ownership of the kinds of means that would enable us to have a decent life unless we're connected to a man. And I can't help thinking since you mentioned George O'Keefe about what a beauty she was as a young woman and how often it's not coincidental that the women artists who are able to maintain some professional standing establish themselves when they are young and beautiful. Not all of us are young and beautiful. And after a certain age, none of us are young and beautiful. But that goes to the fact that women are just one more commodity in this society and we're disposable commodity and ultimately that becomes the form of femicide yes well it's interesting what you mentioned about george o'keefe because that allure in the art world to the persona has become very accented in recent years it hasn't always necessarily existed but it's now very strong even for male artists right where that beauty factor fits in i'm thinking of matthew barney I remember hearing about right. Matthew Barney and people saying, oh, he's a model. And I'm thinking, okay, like, I don't know how that fits into him being an artist. The allure of the persona, the beauty of the artist is also part of the way that art is marketed today. Yes. Yes, it's marketed very much on the basis of the story of the artist. There has to be some romance or drama to our personal story that intrigues the collector. That's one reason, again, why I'm intrigued by the metaverse and NFTs, because they're anonymous, in effect. There's no personality factor. And can you explain to our listeners what an NFT is? Well, that's like explaining the nature of God by standing on one foot in the road. Um, an NFT is a non-fungible token, which means that it cannot be exchanged for any other version of the item. It's unique. But in the sale of an NFT, which is a virtually existent piece of art, it can be 
musical, it can be things. What you own is a stake in the existence of the object, not the object itself. So without going into all the details of how the NFT world works, it is dependent on a series of virtual platforms and relationships that verify the existence of this object with which you are creating a relationship in a contract. But this is all done outside of the material world and in a series of relationships, including some novel relationships to currency, the most egregious of which is cryptocurrency. But a lot of systems have evolved in the past couple of years that are not dependent on cryptocurrency, which uses a lot of energy. You spoke earlier about trigger point theory. And you, I believe you spoke about it in terms of your an early work that you did, or was it the Blue Tree Symphony? It was in the Ghost Nets project, which was 10 years of restoring a local coastal town dump to flourishing wetlands and microhabitat systems. And as I experienced that project, I noticed a number of aspects of change, most of which circled around the idea of the butterfly effect, that a very small experience can generate a series of what are called cascades to affect much larger changes in the system. So as I studied that within the project, I began to speculate how far that might be taken and what were the elements that determined the outcomes. That brought me into studying thermodynamics and quantum mechanics uh, in physics as part of my dissertation, which was titled Trigger Point Theory as Aesthetic Activism. In that research, I identified six rules that you could apply to analyzing the behavior between agents in a system. So theoretically, any experience in life is a system. It's also potentially a model to observe that system. But the model depends on identifying what the rules of interaction are between those agents. So, for example, one rule that I identified, which is not just from physics, is that play can teach. We can learn more sometimes, and this is a part of early education theories in the 20th century. We can often learn more from spontaneously moving things around in our heads and in the world without any clear outcome in mind than we can from identifying the outcome we want and then designing a path to get to that outcome. And so your work, it's clearly integrative of many disciplines, but one of the major arcs in your work is between the sciences and the arts. Obviously, a lot of people discussing ecology might even themselves be in biology or marine biology or what have you. But what you do is to incorporate the natural world with the scientific world. Why is this important that we return to this kind of approach where we don't view anything in the world from a single vantage point, that we incorporate the many types of views and theories around a specific argument that will also take on the scientific? Well, in the sciences, we do talk about an empirical approach to research. 
which means that we learn what we learn through our senses. And that has a lot to do with how indigenous people experience the world. It also is an experience of automatically layering what we observe that's comparable to geographic information systems that was developed initially by the military and has since become the primary mapping device to understand relationships between different kinds of statistical evidence. So, for example, GIS is how we create the maps that are so famous in the New York Times about political relationships across continents or other kinds of relationships. A favorite example of mine is from my colleague Juliana Monte, who's the chair of the geology de uh, geography department at City University of New York, where I took a uh, certificate in geography. And what she did with uh, a colleague uh, Andrew Morocco was they took the statistics of when there were factory emissions in a given area in the Bronx and when there were hospital admissions for asthma and on the basis of correlating the data the statistical data they could then affect city policy to create regulations on the factory because they could prove that by mapping that data, it showed that the emissions were, were affecting the health of the population. They broke it down in terms of what are called buffer zones. So it would be 20 feet from the factory, 50 feet from the factory, 100 feet from the factory, and how lethal were the consequences of those emissions from the factory. So that is a system of, of observing the land that Ian McHarg uh, used, and he's considered the father of contemporary landscape architecture. He used it uh, in a hands-on way of creating tracing paper overlays of how different environmental habitat elements interact in a landscape and from those overlays he could design something that was um, friendly to the environment and also efficient for human use. So through those studies and those observations I realized that we could extrapolate from that to many other cultural experiences. For example, the experience of black people, the experience of NATO, the experience of Ukraine, the experience of Somalia. You start layering in all those sources of data, and this is where we can get into big data issues, and you begin to create a picture that's much more accurate than if you just take one part of the whole system in one region and only look at that. Can you tell us how the culture of the art world has changed for women since you began until now? Well, there are more women in the art world, but we still earn much less than the men. We don't get nearly as many museum shows. I don't remember what the percentages are, but they're really pathetic. We don't have the same access to venues and technologies that would further the development of our practice and our careers that our male colleagues often have. I won't name names, but I will say that many of the early ecological artists have been women, and the ones who are getting the money are the guys. This isn't surprising at all. The gorilla girls are still active. No, and in fact, it's often said that the art market is the least regulated market of all, and it does reflect the larger cultural system. And in fact, it's like a grotesque parody of the cultural system so that whatever sexism exists in the larger culture exists geometrically in the art world. 